And welcome to Spirits in Chat with John and Matt. I am Matt Pullman. And I'm Jonathan Emerson. And this is the podcast where we make up a drink, we chat with a friend or with ourselves, and then we <laughs> geek out over something nerdy. Yes. Yeah, so <laughs> it's been a while. Wow, it's yes. Been a, it's been a hot minute since we recorded, probably about three or four weeks, and what a turn everything has taken in that time we went to hawaii and basically everything blew up right so let's go back a little further so if you'll remember from episode five i believe where we talked about travel we had mentioned that we had booked ourselves on a cruise that was going to be in march well that <laughs> didn't happen and thank god that it didn't happen yeah that uh, gone a couple bad. a couple days before that cruise was set to sail we decided that given the turn of events that going on a cruise probably wasn't the best idea so we were booked to honolulu yeah and we were in honolulu all of last week uh when we left things were somewhat normal in this right. country and about last the thursday before last um things took a turn oh we started getting the panic texts from people at home right and started really actively wondering about whether we would be able to make it back or not. Right, right. <laughs> Long story short, we almost cut our Honolulu vacation short. We didn't. Um, we made it safely back to New York. Um, the trip was Amazing. wonderful. It was a bit. The first five days were stress-free uh, yes. and wonderful. <laughs> the last two days of our vacation were wonderful, but with a lot of travel stress. So right. we, we didn't make it home back to New York a week ago, last Sunday, and like most everyone else in New York, we have been under quarantine for this week. Uh, we are blessed in the fact that we have jobs that we can work remotely. Yes. So we are working from home. Except for the artistic side of things where we've been very, uh, we've been good about the whole remote thing. Uh, our artistic lives have not been put so much on hold, um, but still like, hosting auditions and doing things online that you've never done before brave new world uh so yeah right we're we're making do we've talked about this in other episodes specifically the christina sheehan episode that we're planning to produce pip in the summer it is still a go for now as of now in the summer things should be open fingers crossed yeah. e everything is subject to change of course but gotta be for now that is still happening we hope that wherever you are that you are safe that you are healthy i know this is a hard time for a lot of people we are very lucky again our jobs have been haven't been affected yet Yet, right. who knows? We know a lot of people who have lost jobs, who are in between jobs. A lot of folk, friends and folks on in the, in the entertainment industry in New York. I mean, it's been super hard hit. Uh, a lot of people are having some financial uncertainties right now. Um, all we can say is we sympathize. We empathize. We are here for you in spirit. If you're in the city, we are here for you personally. Yeah. Yeah. I, we'll you know, it, you yeah. know, what do you say? There's been right. so much so much is going on and i i find myself glued to the news every day i watch at least two hours of breaking news and i think something that's been healthy is sometimes during the day you just have to stop right. you have to turn the channel you have to take a walk you have to play a video game play listen, with your dog if you have one or listen your cat to music go online play like read a book just mentally uncheck for a little bit that's how we've been coping this podcast will continue yes because luckily we can record from our home and we can distribute um straight from our phones and from our tablets so i know that this is not a priority for anyone <laughs> but hopefully maybe again it can be an hour of disconnect an escape that escape that we all need we enjoy doing this we will keep doing this even if no one is listening our listenership <laughs> has gone down dramatically in the past couple of weeks, completely understandable, because <laughs> I don't think any podcasting is anyone's priority. But we will still be here. Please continue reaching out to us, emailing us. If you would like to be on this podcast, we would like to talk to you. Yeah, absolutely. Via Zoom, of course. Yeah. We will not contaminate each other. <laughs> but as they say, the show must go on. And we or are going Queen to... Or as Queen would say, show must go on. 
Uh, it's the same thing I said, but you just said in falsetto. <laughs> so let's get straight into it. No more sad talk. Okay. Uh, what are we making today? We today are making the and talking about the history of the daiquiri. Oh, fancy. And, right? Fancy. It's probably one of the first, at least the virgin version, is probably the first quote-unquote cocktail that a lot of us are introduced to. Um, you know, at... Well, at least a lot of the restaurants in Ohio back when I was growing up had a virgin daiquiri on the menu. Oh, okay. uh, but interestingly, as I was digging into the history of the drink, like many cocktails, what we see in restaurants today is a really, really bastardized version of what the original was. What? You mean what they're serving up at TGI Fridays in that big fishbowl <laughs> with whipped cream on top is <laughs> not what Hemingway was drinking? No. Oh, dear. Okay, no. so... Do you want to get into yeah, the history so right now? Not the history. Let's start with um, oh. some of the ingredients for the classic margarita. Oh, uh, I've been away. Daiquiri. I've been away so long. I don't know what I'm doing. Yes. Okay. <laughs> what are the so ingredients? we'll start with uh, the ingredients for the recipe I used, which again is not what you're going to find in restaurants. They're vastly, vastly different. The original. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. What are restaurants? Uh, ah, yeah, if you can't make that, that yeah. yeah, those things where you used to go and sit down at a table. And now you have to, so Matt and I, uh, fun fact, quick story, uh, Matt and I were trying to get out of the house for a hot minute today. And so yesterday we walked by our local TGI Fridays. Again, I mentioned them twice in a minute because I, I'm basically trash. And I saw that they were doing drinks to go. To and go. I thought It was like New Orleans up in here. Yeah, like why not? And... And so, but the setup for being socially distanced in like getting these drinks was so complex. We decided that maybe we'd just make a, a margarita at home. Yeah, and uh, there was only one employee who was trying to handle all the takeout orders. And like, I'm not going to tax her with yeah, the she burden. Yeah, stressed. Of, she so looked like, real no, stressed. We're just going to go. And then we got yelled at on our way back by for a crazy. For not having a face mask yeah. on by some random lady outside an Irish bar. She was coming out of a bar, so I, I don't she know might what. She have been intoxicated. I don't know but... what germs she thought she was avoiding by one, going into a bar, and two, getting up into strangers' faces, but. But yeah. there you go. Sometimes you have to scream at a stranger. And again, so. a lot. Yeah, we're, we're New Yorkers. This is something we do pretty often. Hopefully it was therapeutic for her. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, uh, so this is the original recipe for the drink as created by Cox Jennings in the early 1900s. Uh, so we're looking at, and I doubled this recipe so that Matt and I could both have one. Uh, so for, for one serving, you're looking at two ounces of light rum, one ounce fresh lime juice, and I will tell you in advance, fresh is important, but buy a lot of limes because get it. It's about it's about it's about two limes per ounce. And uh, if you have scurvy, it'll cure it. It will cure the scurvy. Uh, three fourths ounce uh, of Demera sugar syrup, and garnish with a lime twist if you so choose. I'm not doing that because I, I just didn't feel like lazy. it. Yeah, I'm I'm at home, you know, in a in a pandemic, so I skipped the uh, the garnish. Uh, so yeah, that's it. And you put it all in a strainer. That's relatively simple. You shake it up, which I'm going to do right now. Oh, and they say to use powdered ice or crushed ice uh, because it adds a little bit to the drink. So they and say yeah. we've been talking so much, our ice is melting. So it's giving me anxiety. So okay. we should make this up right now. Okay, that is thoroughly shaken. Thoroughly shaken, Millie. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a woman who's. That, I don't want to say. I tried to use yeah. a Broadway reference, really and it did not go well. All right. Uh, I would say shaken in the emotional sense because... Yeah, it, shook. Shook. Yeah, that's I don't. The... I don't want to sound like Millie's in a domestic violence <laughs> <laughs> situation. <laughs> so, yes, for our listeners at home, I was, uh, I was using the shook uh, emotionally variety of that okay. phrase there. Um, okay, so... Okay, we... it's a pinkish red... Kind of. It's got like a yellowish hue. It's, it's probably what intestines look like. Oh, okay. And the best All possible. Right. Maybe, oh, we have to take a picture. Yeah, maybe put some nice, nicer lighting on it or something. Yeah, we're we're in. I'm we're recording on my at home office setup, which I kind of had to move things around, and the lighting isn't great. But I think my phone has a flash, so oh, there's gonna be garbage in the background. I don't care. There we go. Okay. Okay. We're ready. Right, so uh, let's give it a try. Yay. Cheers. It's really good. I was thinking, I don't think I've ever had 
a traditional daiquiri in this sense. I've definitely had the frozen kind, the kind that came out of a big slushy machine. Mm -hmm. And that's been my experience. But we can talk about more about individual experience, but that is that is very similar to a Cosmo, actually. It I think has with, a, with the lime with and the fresh limes and, and the fruit. And, and again, uh, we'll dig into the history in a second, but basically, like, this, this tradition came about in Cuba mm. because... A person who was not who was used to gin and serving gin drinks to his guest ran out of gin and had to use the the local Bacardi rum and was looking for a vehicle to do so. Uh, yeah, so yeah, that's... and I I like this a lot. Typically, rum is kind of my least favorite spirit. Okay, it's fine, but I don't I never ever get rum drinks when I'm ordering out or when I'm making it. But I like it. It's actually surprisingly not too too sweet mm -hmm. I, you can definitely tell that there's sugar but the acidity and kind of the sharpness of the i think it's the lime and also with the with the rum mm -hmm. counteracts the the sugar in a nice way that yeah. it doesn't it doesn't feel too desserty like maybe right. the more it doesn't, slushy type yeah it doesn't have and the crushed ice really does help like i started uh the glass actually it started to melt as matt mentioned that I started the glass uh, filled with a little bit of uh, crushed ice, and I had crushed ice in the strainer as well. So you get a little bit of uh, uh, the icy. Not it, it's not slushy, but it's it's got a little bit of uh, ice ice in there that's um, not big chunks. Um, and then yeah, the the acidity of the lime really sells it. Like you need the lime uh, juice in there. These and you don't want this to be too sweet or it'll be terrible. So, like, had I even gone half an ounce more on the simple syrup, this would have been a bomb. Uh, so yeah, right. I, I, I enjoy it. It's it, I probably top five of uh original drink uh creations, or I should say, not original, but like taking the original recipe and, and remaking mm -hmm. it. Uh, so yeah, why don't we? Um, so any, any other thoughts about the flavor profiles or the um. Uh, uh, taste of the drink? No, it, it's it's good. It's definitely a a sipper drink, which is not what I expect expected it to be. Because again, I'm used to the more big bowl of syrupy kind of sugary water, and Honestly, it's it nice. I enjoy me, it. It reminds me of an amaretto sour. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I can see it. Yeah. Okay. Sure. Are you ready for the history? I am. Let's okay. deep dive. So whenever you're ready, I have the timer. Oh, 60 here. seconds. Okay. okay. All right. On your mark, get set, go. All right. This drink was created by a gentleman by the name of Cox Jennings in early 1900s Cuba. Uh, he was an engineer in a mine uh, in the Daiquiri Mines, Daiquiri Beach area. Uh, interestingly, the contract negotiation for the miners in this case uh, allotted for a supply of local rum for all the miners. So that's one hell of a negotiation right there. Uh, anyway, they were exploring, uh, according to a story by this gentleman's daughter, because he, kept an, he came, uh, kept an extensive diary, he uh, was uh, had some American visitors in from out of town and ran out of gin and uh, was trying to zhuzh up uh, the local rum into, into a punch cocktail that they could enjoy. So that's what he did. He... Oh, yeah, 10 seconds. Uh, oh, right. He uh, documented the recipe in his diary, and that's why we have a daiquiri today. It's evolved from there. Okay, great. Yeah, you did it in under a minute with three seconds and three point seconds zero eight of a second to spare. What? Uh, so I, of course, printed out the Wikipedia, and it's basically what you said. So this drink, it's actually listed in David Embury's book, the fine art of mixing drinks, which is, it's one of the six basic drinks. So like yeah. top six. Yep. And the other ones were the Jack Rose, oh. the Manhattan, the Martini, the Old Fashioned, and the Sidecar. I think only so, the Sidecar and the other one you mentioned. So we've done three out three of the six. six. Three out of the six. Nice. So look at us. Uh, so the word daiquiri is the name of a beach and an iron mine near Santiago de Cuba, and the word is in Taino origin. I had no idea what Taino was. Or... Uh, that's uh, T -A So it's T-A-I-N-O. Taino, I believe. Ta so I, I did look up the pronunciation. Oh, the pronunciation says Taino. Oh. But I could be wrong. If okay. I am wrong, someone can 
let me know. And Taino was the early language of the Caribbean. Okay. And your history was correct. It kind of reached the U.S. in the 1940s. Um, Franklin D. Roosevelt had his quote-unquote good neighbor policy, which opened up travel between Latin America, Cuba, Caribbean, and North America. So in the 1940s, you started seeing a lot of Cuban influence in American culture, mm -hmm. which helped make the drink more popular. And as I mentioned before, it was one of the favorite drinks of writer Ernest Hemingway and also John F. Kennedy. I did do a little deep dive because there was some uh, discontinuity within Wikipedia itself yes. under a simple fact that it, in the basic article, it says that the recipe for daiquiri is also similar to grog, which is something that British sailors drank aboard the ship from rum as a means to preventing scurvy. Hmm. When you actually research grog on Wikipedia, it actually contradicts that fact right there. Oh. So one, I didn't know what grog was. Grog, G-R-O-G. I've heard so of it. grog was basically water that had alcohol added aboard the ships so they the get ship, scurvy well yeah. well no 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 oh. let me finish oh sure <laughs> let me finish there's a lot so in the 161700s when the ships would sail and they would pack water after a couple of days the water would get icky and moldy and mm. it would taste weird mm. so they would add alcohol to it to make it more palatable okay and so that's what grog is. And so this statement says that they drink grog with lime as a means of preventing scurvy. Okay. So actually, but that fact is incorrect. Um, they would add lime and other citrus fruit to the grog um, just to make it more palatable. Oh, sure. So Like hotel water. Uh, when, you, when you're right. getting water in a hotel and they have like the little thing and they have fruit in it. Oh, okay. Okay, they okay. I think other places do this. <laughs> you're talking about uh, this went down. <laughs> My mind is okay. When you're at the hotel, you don't have scurvy. I'm like, okay. Uh, okay. So you mean like when you're in the lobby of a fancy place <laughs> like a hotel, you can tell how much we get out. <laughs> so when you're at the Nash Dejin and they have that water hole and there and there's a lemon floating in it and some yeah. watermelon yeah. sometimes. Yeah. So kind of like practicing our southern tonight. Okay. I don't know. I'm. Again, we're we're not fancy gentlemen. <laughs> so yes, yeah, so I guess it's it was an aperitif. They would add rum to the water. Mm. It it started with other, but it was more spirits. about flavor than it was scurvy. It was about making the water palatable, oh, okay. so they could be hydrated. Gotcha. But then it wasn't about scurvy. But later there was a scurvy outbreak, mm. and of course, and so then the captains noticed that citrus fruit um, cures scurvy so then they started um adding citrus into their diet and to their drinks but the two things are not connected okay. and also because the british sailors started including limes in their diet that's why a nickname for british people is limey I don't know if you heard that. Oh, I have you know, heard like, that. Oh, she's a limey broad. That's, that's where. Yeah, that's like Irish I learned, Irish slang for. Well, well it's British. Yeah. No, it's British slang for someone from Great Britain. You're from right, right, right. And I might be wrong on a few of those facts. Some, you can all at me, but that's that's the basic. And I learned that all from researching grog. And uh, there, there's variations of the drink. Okay. There's the Hemingway daiquiri or Papa Double, which is two and a half jiggers of white rum juice of two limes, and half a grapefruit, six drops of maraschino liqueur without sugar. So it's probably pretty intense. We have a banana daiquiri with a banana and... Uh, of course, the strawberry, which... It doesn't list that on here. Really? But there's also an avocado daiquiri, which wow. kind of sounds nasty. I don't, I I don't, don't want to drink that. I don't know with that. Yeah. yeah. And, of course, there's a paragraph on the frozen daiquiri, which is, again, bringing it back. I think that's what... In Americana today, when you hear daiquiri, you think of the frozen daiquiri, which is, right. again, the kind of commercial, very sugary, mostly now, like that and frozen margaritas are kind of pre-made and a big thing that's tumbling around mm. and it's it's sugar water. And I think that's a lot of our first experiences Quarries with into jackery yes into booze in general i will say what's really interesting when you deep dive not just this drinks research 
really a lot of them. Eggnog, uh, the uh, margarita, a lot of these these drinks. Um, day drinking was a much, much bigger thing in the 1900s than it is uh, currently. <laughs> like, so I'm, I'm looking at a an article from uh, Difford's Guide, which uh, has, has a really interesting uh, breakdown of the history of this drink. And... It starts with the boy, you know, quote unquote, the or quote, the boys used to have three or four every morning. These were the miners in the daiquiri mine. So can mm. you imagine like having three or four daiquiris before like starting? So when your... was when was that? This like was when... a, a oh, oh so... see, I in 1902. Okay, yeah. I wonder if that was more about hydration than interesting. Maybe about I don't. It know. could be. I'm trying. I don't know why I'm trying to like excuse these young men's behavior a hundred years ago. Well, I just think, I think there was, there was a lot of cultural difference. You know, this was yeah before a lot of, I mean, before, but you would have to be somewhat sober to work in, in a mine. That if was my question. people are drunk yeah. out of their minds swinging axes. They, I mean, this isn't a super strong drink, but I'm just saying like yeah. for them, I probably but wouldn't want to go into a how meeting, you know, strong. Cause again, the daiquiri in 1902 is probably again, very different. Than what maybe we're even drinking. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the recipe, the original recipe, which I'm looking at right now, it was made in a punch bowl, right? So we're talking about the juice of six lemons, yeah. not limes, uh, six teaspoons of sugar, six teaspoons of sugar, uh, and then six, okay, this is where it gets a little intense, but also, six Bacardi cups, there, so carta blanca, wow. I mean, there is a tradition of people who work those physically intensive jobs would just eat or drink a lot. a lot like oh yeah lot, like that's what like a farmer's breakfast well if you look is, at yeah, yeah exactly uh, cuban uh cuban peasant cuisine uh for or, or cuban farmer cuisine it follows a lot of the same traditions as irish breakfast as english breakfast as yeah and it's heavy on carbohydrates and sugar because you need that energy to do your job because you're doing a lot of physical intense work a lot less physically intense work that we'll be doing this week because we will be at home. At home. Which At is home. Why we're, and we, we will... are not going to start our day with four daiquiris. No, I'll, uh... I think I'll start with two. <laughs> I'll see how the work goes. And I'll see, see what my productivity see how the is news, like. See how the news devolves in just the next, you know, yeah. 12 hours. Yeah, I'll, I'll work my way up to four. Because <laughs> I have goals. Okay, so John, you know Rover.com? I know it very, very well. Yes, Rover.com is a site where you can book dog walkers, dog sitters. All of um, our dog sitters thus far have been through Rover.com. Yes, um, this isn't a commercial for them. <laughs> You're not listening for an advertisement. We're, we're not making any money on this podcast yet from them, but we would love to. Anyway, Rover.com did a study, and they found that adopting a dog improves LGD. LGBTQ plus couples relationships. Unhappy couples, get yourself to the pound. Mm-hmm. I'm reading an article. That wasn't my uh, copy. Anyway, Rover's study found that two-thirds of gay, lesbian, and bisexual couples said that adopting a dog together made their relationship stronger, while another 56% said they spend more time together after getting a dog than they did before. What are your thoughts on that? So I, I guess I agree with the article wholeheartedly. Um, I think when you first get a dog, facing the it, it's like anything else. Uh, it's all about the journey. So, uh, so let's talk about the journey because not <laughs> everyone knows that we have a dog. Um, we mentioned him a few times on the podcast, but he's a fairly new addition, addition to, to the family. family. Yeah. We've only had him since Labor Day, which is what about going on seven seven, seven months, months? Yeah, yeah seven yeah. eight months yeah so somewhat newish uh so it was something we had been thinking about for a long time about two years of uh deep dives and research and questioning whether it was the right time uh to... and getting bait and switched into accidentally going to a puppy store which was a puppy mill kind of thing oh we, that was heartbreaking yeah, yeah we saw an ad that was supposed to be for private breeders. We get to the address and they pointed us to a really dingy puppy store in deep, deep Brooklyn and brought out a very sick dog. Very and sick, poor little doggy. It was a sad situation. So yeah, so it was, it was, for us, it was two years in the making. Right. 
Um, and then we finally found one through a private breeder, private breeder in, in Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania. Right. And so I think the story about getting our dog was that when we went to go pick him up, we weren't really sure that we were going to buy him. Right. Um, so we had flown into Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania to visit home, which mm -hmm. is in Ohio. And on the way home, we stopped at the breeders and thought, like, we'll just look at the dog. And if we feel like it's a good match, we'll put in a down payment and then pick it up on the way back. Yep. And so, yeah, we we traveled out there. Um, I, you know, it's, it's very, so, you know, first off, I'll just say like, if you can, our, our situation's a little unique. Uh, if you can adopt a yes. dog from a adopt, shelter. Don't shop if you can. Absolutely. hundred percent. Um, you know, the situation that Matt and I were in was that like everything else in New York city, uh, there were unique challenges around dog, ado around adopting a dog. Uh, namely that being in an apartment, it's actually a part of our lease that we can't have a dog over 20 pounds. Uh, they can't make noise or be aggressive. So we had like this set of parameters and you'd be surprised how many teeny tiny dogs, uh, you think would be well under 20 pounds that actually are rarely ever are, <laughs> uh, namely pugs, uh, uh, French bulldogs and a, a few others that we considered. So it took a massive amount of research to even hone in on a breed that, that met those criteria. And then to top it all off, um, it was not, it's a very, so we ended up settling on, uh, our dog Pantalaimon is a, a Japanese chin. Uh, they meet all of those puppy friendly apartment, uh, doggy requirements. So, uh, so our first issue was, oh, okay, well, where do we even find one? Yeah. So we found a breeder in PA and we walked in and it was just kind of, I don't say a spur of the moment decision, but we really only had about five ten minutes a few minutes really yeah. with him because we were in a stranger's house and we're just kind of standing there in a kitchen and it's kind of like well in Ioana, i guess he's fine i mean how do you i mean he was <laughs> very adorable he was very cute but as it again it was very strange it was just kind of you just kind of had to trust your instincts with any such with such a big decision you'd really rather and if you lived local you know it could be pretty easy but we were going back to new york two days later basically uh, so we only had a little bit of time to discuss, and uh, we did uh, really strategically, um, it all, all ended up working out, but um, in terms of this article and, and strengthening relationships, I, I think I think the journey to dog ownership and dealing with all the complexities of, of getting a dog, and then of course, you know, it's not, it takes time for y your dog and you to adapt to each other's lifestyle. And I will say this, like it took some time, but, um, dogs by their very nature are, you know, they're, they're, uh, evolved to be a, a great, uh, uh, pet. So, um, they do, uh, adapt to your lifestyle and your individual needs. Right. It was, I will say the first month was rough as as Pan is squeaking his toy in the background. How apropos. Um, it was a, it was an adjustment and there were some tears shed. I won't get into all the details about all our training because we could talk for an hour. But it was it, it was rough. And but we got through it. We got through the hardest part and slowly but surely he kind of adjusted his behavior into the kind of doggy that we needed him to be for our lifestyle. And yeah, I'll, yeah. I'll say I, I was, this. Like, it took me about, this sounds, I don't want to say mean or maybe disheartening, but like I would say about a month or month and a half before I really started to care about the dog. Mm. Like I always liked him. I always thought he was cute, but it took a long time to build that relationship. It was not instantaneous. It was not an instant bond. Let's yeah. Just say. I mean, so I, and that's also unique to, to, like my experience was I was kind of love at first sight. Like, um, you know, I, I really bonded with him quickly, but I also had the advantage of before all this chaos with the, the virus happened. Um, I was working from home anyway, three days a week. So I was, you know, all but, all but two days a week, I was, uh, his full-time caregiver. So like he adapted to me a lot quicker. 
Um, and then there was a moment where it sort of clicked, where like we had gone through all the challenges and the goods started to outweigh the, the difficulties, and he started to really become uh, a member of the family. A member of the family that loves to interrupt our podcast. <laughs> uh, right now, he is swicking his Chewbacca toy and literally playing fetch with himself. He is tossing <laughs> it in the air and chasing it after him. Like, like a good only child, <laughs> he has learned how to entertain himself while the parents are busy doing something else. Um, so to bring it back to the article... It said 56% of LGBTQ couples said that it strengthened their relationship. So in terms of our marriage, our relationship, and of other couples that we know, how have you noticed a change like in that, without getting too many personal details, like how, sure. how do you think it's changed the, the marriage? Um, you know, I, I would say that, you know, having hopefully been, for the better, <laughs> like, um, I mean, you know, we've been together for nearly 20 years now, you know, all things considered. So I, I honestly felt like we were already super strong, you know, together. Uh, and I think that adding a new member to the family really, for me, just, just prove that, you know, once again, you know, we can, we can have, you know, whatever, uh, whatever kind of life we we dream of you know so it, it just takes hard work and persistence like like everything else we've you know uh achieved um you know in our in our lives so yeah i think uh it also you know at you know in terms of like family planning you know it it, it felt like you know a, a milestone it you know that we that we got to together and that we succeeded at together and we're still learning from the dog um every day and i also feel like i learned a lot more about you know like it shows you that you have a a marriage with somebody that you can truly truly depend on like you already go in right in terms that. of the relationship having adding a pet to the family there's so much more communication that has to happen it actually had to happen up front yeah. Um, in terms of about scheduling and logistics and about money, who's going to pay for the vet insurance, who's going to pay for the food, who's going to, you know, so he's going to so, pay for the daycare. I mean, he right. Has, so we, yeah. I'm so much, there were so much logistics and planning. I'm, as there probably, you know, inevitably is with when a couple has an actual human child. Mm -hmm. And also for so long, you know, gay couples couldn't adopt. This is only in the past two or two decades that that's become a reality. So for a long time, you know, dogs and cats were the closest that, you know, we could have to children. So yeah. a lot of um, same-sex couples really more than anyone else really treat their pets like children. And oh, I, sure I think, <laughs> I, yeah, I, I, I try to just tell him, like, you know, he's a dog, he's a dog, he's fine, <laughs> and not baby him too much. But I, I find myself, you know, cradling him in my arms a lot. And then we pick him up and carry him everywhere because he does not, he loves to go outside, but he does not. It, it's interesting, like, uh, the different characteristics of each dog's personality that sort of come out and how in many ways they do kind of reflect uh their owners to a degree for instance pan is very bougie he has way too many toys and he he's a very social dog he's got lots of lots of buddies around the neighborhood so yeah i i think that the article is spot on i do you know again want to caution because you know even you and i sort of went through i call it the puppy blues period uh right after you adopt you know your first dog but making those adjustments to lifestyle can give you a lot of different uh emotions and feelings and postpartum so there are a lot of really great articles uh about that phenomenon that uh, you know definitely look into um you know there's a lot of folks end up back at back at shelters uh really because they either didn't do research up front, you know, enough research up front to be as prepared for the dog as you can be. Um, I will also say that having a puppy versus having an almost full-grown dog oh, yeah. is a completely different experience. Because when we got him, he was only three months. And my expectations might have been a little off where I kind of expected to have this, you know, perfectly mature, quiet, housebroken <laughs> dog, which... He is now, and the breed is known for being quiet and, well, not at this moment <laughs> right now, as he's literally causing a ruckus at our feet. Um, and I kind of expected that all up front. And when those expectations weren't 
met and my life had changed so much. I was really used to just being able to leave whenever I wanted. I remember even a month in, I just turned to John. I was like, remember when we could just leave the house? Remember when we went to go somewhere? We could just walk out the door and it wasn't an issue. Those were terrible days. I'm so glad that I get to clean up poop and I get to spend hundreds of dollars a month on walks and... But I'll look at that care. little, look at that little face. Right. Um, yeah, so uh, our, this this dog breed is fantastic for apartments. And uh, as Matt said, you know, in so many words, it, it takes a little bit to train a, a new puppy. You have to really start from, from scratch. <laughs> and in many ways, they train you too. You know, you start to observe and learn each other's behaviors. And then that's really when the relationship kind of forms there. Um, so speaking of relationships with dogs... There's a website that I read sometimes that I'm not proud of reading. It's called the Data Lounge. Oh, that's and it's trashy Reddit for gay men, basically. <laughs> and there's a post that's kind of related to the topic at hand. The subject is is dog breeds that sin- signify that someone is gay. Here is the message board post. Okay. I just met this guy who has a Dalmatian. He is really hot, but I can't tell if he is gay. Usually, I think of small breeds as dogs gay guys have. Do you think Dalmatian could signify gay? Um, (laughs) I don't think it has anything to do with the... I'm I'm eager to hear these replies, though. I'm sure they were um, well-received. So it got to the broader discussion of, of which... Dog breeds are the gay dog breeds. Someone suggested that as for gay, it's a sure tip off when there's a poo in the breed's name. <laughs> like Sheltie Poo, Yorkie Poo, Golden well, Golden, golden doodle. doodle. Oh my, uh, that's why they call it Golden so Doodle. Bra- so my, my sister, so Brandy, that's for you. <laughs> she I has just a realized doodle. that's why they call it Golden Doodle, not Golden Poo. <laughs> That would sound terrible. And that would set up the expectations that maybe they... That they poop gold. Gold, yeah. And there'd be so many returns. That just clicked in my brain. Um, Someone else replied, uh, if a guy has a Pomeranian, he's gay. Wow, that's that's very uh, direct. Okay. Yeah. Uh, So in your opinion, any other dog breeds... Are the gay dog breeds? I mean, one could definitely argue, especially if with with our dog breed, um, a lot of people do like the puppy coat permanently. You know, like they'll keep them uh, kind of short haired, and they look, you know, kind of their version of Butch uh, when you when you cut them that way. Uh, we use a, a full coat, um, and eventually, <laughs> say say hi, Pan. Um, eventually, they grow this long, sweeping mop mane that uh, if you kick, and you, you you know and these dogs can carry around easily in a little bag. So for me, uh, yeah, we have a gay dog. Yeah, what to say? <laughs> were, were you answering my question or just describing how we groom uh, the dog? <laughs> and I think about our dog is that he takes after Daddy John is he does not like aerobic exercise. <laughs> the thought of going on a walk makes him want to run and hide, and I'll do it right now. Hey Pan, do you want to go on a walk? Want to go on a walk? Okay, let's go on a walk. Okay. And he's now going to his favorite little hidey hole when that happens, uh, which is underneath the coffee table or under the bed. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, we, he, and he loves to walk actually when he's on the walk itself, but it's the game he plays for avoiding the walk that is kind of humorous. Uh, but he also, we have a small outdoor space. Um, he loves to go outside. In fact, one of his idiosyncrasies is he will request to go outside like, I call it patrolling, but uh, he will ask to go out on patrol for, like, ever. Uh, So as to lifestyle uh, changes uh, when you get a dog, I will say um, that they become a perfect excuse to get out of social engagements that you don't want to stay at. Oh, yes. Yeah, so anytime you're at a party or somewhere (laughs) or a work event and you just don't want to be there, the excuse, I have to go home and let the dog out, 
it's foolproof because no one will argue with it. You you just have to have a dog, or at least a lot of pictures of yourself with, <laughs> with, with, a, with dog. a dog. Yeah, you you. Could... It sounds it sounds. I I have to go take my dog out. Sounds way better than I'd really rather not be here. Yeah. <laughs> All right. And on that note, Pan, do you have anything else you'd like to add about ownership? Yeah, you were talking today. I must have known we were talking about you. No. <laughs> okay. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Spirits and Chat with John and Matt. Um, in the background here, you've got a little bit of uh, Princes of the Universe, so that should give you uh, fans out there a clue as to what uh, today's fanboy corner is. Um, it's also in the episode description, so that's the clue as well. <laughs> anyway, we are doing the 1986 uh, cult classic Highlander, uh, filmed by director Russell McCauley, uh, starring Christopher Lambert and Clancy Brown. And Sean Connery. And Sean Connery. Sean Connery. Cannot forget that. I, and I his, can't do a Sean his, Connery. I was listening to another podcast. I'll shout them out. Why not? Uh, that this had Oscar Buzz podcast. And okay. they were trying to do their Sean Connery accent one week and then they're trying to do their share accent the following week and they were both exactly the same so, so if you can't do either one um just think of either share or sean like right i can do share whoa i'm share and then you twist it a little and you got your sean, sean connery. connery well mine's not bad here's my take on the intro to this film uh the the from the dawn of time we came silently moving down through the centuries leading many secret lives no one ever knew we were among you until now and i only got that like semi right but uh we did re-watch the film before uh doing this session so yes, it's um, very fresh in our minds mm -hmm. and heads up this is more of a john thing <laughs> than a mad thing so usually the stuff that we talk about is stuff that we are kind of equally familiar with uh this one the the weight is a little in balance tilted <laughs> towards you so we rewatched it thursday night that was my third time seeing the film ever yep. in our 18 year relationship and earlier that day i had a zoom conference call which was a zoom happy hour okay. so i had a martini so i was very sleepy and i ended up falling asleep through <laughs> kind of the last half an hour um but i've seen it so, so i knew what happened that i'm right. still I, i'm going into this not as prepared so shame on me that but. is that is okay i am uh, this is one that i am uh, such a fanboy of i almost didn't prep for it, but I, being myself, uh, did did indeed prepare. Good, good. So, since I am still not sure what I watched on Thursday night, <laughs> why don't I give a very brief description of the plot to this film, I and then it. and then you can correct me. I will. I will help along. Okay. So, <laughs> I, I'm going to sound like I've never seen this movie, but I really have. <laughs> I really have. Okay. So, there is this ancient clan of people are immortal and there's half of them are good and half of them are bad <laughs> no 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 this is this yeah, is right, right, right okay. and they're fighting because only one can remain to inherit all the power in the universe there can be only one so throughout history there has been this battle between the good immortals and the bad immortals and the only way to kill them is to chop off their head right Correct. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's a big plot point. <laughs> and so we start off it starts off at Madison Square Garden in yep. the nineteen eighties. And it's the most eighties that it's New York has very ever been. 80s so New it's nineteen eighty six, which is like peak eighties. Like Oh yeah. And because once you get into the later eighties, like if you watch shows like Nine and Two and on Golden Girls, which I've seen a few episodes of, like <laughs> once you get towards eighty nine, it's really the nineties. Like like the the hair flattens, the shoulder pads leave. There's less cocaine. There's less wind. 
there's less there's less prostitution. There's less uh, no, the prostitutes just well they, they go move, they go on down they, they move go a inside further, further downtown. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. They, they go down to Thirty Fourth Street and the Lion King comes in. Um, oh, so it's Ace New York and he's at a wrestling match or something. Yes, and then some. Our, our lead, Christopher Lambert, and then he's tracked down by this dude, and it's in a parking garage, and they fight with swords, and he chops off his head, and then a frizzy-haired detective lady comes, and she's like, this is an ancient sword. It's from Japan. It's worth a million dollars, and she's also an author. She's an anthropologist who, like, entered the forest, and then, hold on, and then they, they meet up, and he's still being tracked by another bad guy the Kurgan and, and then long story short they fight on top of Silver Cup Studios in yes. Long Island City before it was gentrified and he chops off the bad guy's head and then he lifts his sword into the sky and lightning hits it and then he has all the power in the world and that's <laughs> Am I right? Um, okay, that is definitely a hot take from someone who's seen it three times rather than nine. If you had to give me a grade on a test, I would, what would that be? Would that be a C plus? I would say I was going to say a C plus. Come so, on, all right, C's, and, C's get degrees. Uh, yeah. Okay. No, now, tell me, tell me the correct. Okay, and there's a lot of fan culture around this. So you to start off with, um, this podcast is ignoring both uh, all 85 sequels of this that happened and and also the TV there's series. A show and there's also a cartoon. And also a cartoon. So we're ignoring all of that. Because the kids were clamoring for this. Uh, <laughs> did anyone want that cartoon? No, did no. Anyone, was no, anyone asking for that? I mean, there was there was a sufficient fan culture, but it, you, know, you mentioned it earlier, even on three viewings, the decapitation being the central piece of them losing their immortality uh, is sort of a big deal. So uh, in the TV show, they translated that to an almost voluntary separation. Um, I almost called it of the force, but of the quickening. So a uh, quick fanboy background on this. Um, you, you hit it on the head. Uh, so there is a, I want to call them a subset. If you dig into the uh, sequels, it uh, nerds out a little bit more and goes a lot of different directions, all of which the original film uh, didn't have. And also um, there were a lot of retcons that didn't end up being absorbed. So we're just sticking with the main uh, mysterious plot line of the first movie. Uh, and that is there's a group of humans, uh, people who uh, are born from regular human beings uh, that have this immortal trait. Uh, they cannot die. They can breathe underwater because they can't drown. Uh, they can be stabbed, shot, burned, um, all sorts of different things. The only thing that can end their existence is decapitation. And it's almost kind of like a shared immortality. The quickening is this force. Uh, there I threw in the word force for you. Uh, but is a is a mystical force that connects all immortals and uh, bids them to fight to the last, uh, draws them into combat, uh, not, not necessarily against their will, but it's kind of like an honor game that they are forced as immortals to play, and or if they don't, uh, they're, they're going to be hunted down by other immortals if they don't fight. So uh, it's not necessarily 50% good guys, 50% bad. They're really just people, and just like uh, they're good and bad people, there were good and bad immortals, there were immortals who were friends. Uh, and this movie captures all of that, but still leaves enough mystery so you're not like, this is stupid, uh, which is what it kind of gets into in a lot of the sequels, in my humble opinion. So basically, they are fighting. The way in which I look at uh, the Quickening is uh, they're, they're fighting. The Quickening gives them the sense of one another that allows them to know where to go to seek out other immortals. Uh, but the power, uh, the, the prize, so to speak, is really very, very similar to uh, enlightenment in Buddhism. It's becoming a, a oneness with everything and being able to empathically and, and telepathically feel what everyone's thinking and or you know either control them as a bad immortal who won the prize would do or help them to understand and communicate and grow as a, as a people you know if, if somebody who got won the prize uh, you know as, as spoiler alert happens in in this movie. So uh, yeah, it uh, starts out with our hero Connor McLeod. Um, he 
fights on the shores of Loch Schneel against this other clan called the Phasers. It's his first battle, and this Black Knight, uh, he tries to fight him. The Black Knight stabs him. Um, and before being able to take his, his behead him, uh, his friends uh, save him, but he still dies on the table, only to resurrect, you know, basically, not, not momentarily, but not long after. Uh, and then... Really, I won't give away the entire plot just in case you want to watch it. It's a great film. Uh, but the director, Russell McCauley, uh, was actually more well-known for his music videos. So groundbreaking at the time, he used a lot of these jump cuts and and uh, fast edits, different, different things that you'd often see in music videos um, applied to this film. So it was kind of groundbreaking at the time. And you can't really get into this movie. In my humble opinion, what made this movie was the music, which the whole mm -hmm. soundtrack. I did like the soundtrack. It, it was all by Queen. Uh, it's, it's all by 100 Queen. 100% Queen. It's, uh, it's some of the best music ever. And just to give you a little bit of where my brain is, is at, my dad, I think, actually introduced me to Highlander. This was just after I started, you know, learning martial arts. Um, introduced me to Highlander when it first came out. I think I saw it in the theaters. I was like five, though, so I probably didn't understand a lot of the concepts. But then when I was 10, 11 years old, I started staying with my father um, in in the summers for like a week or two, and there was nothing to do, you know, while, while Dad was away working um, except watch TV and listen to music. So my dad just so happened to have this old school vinyl record player and lo and behold the vinyl what was at the time like eps of of these uh, queen songs from highlander so i listened to them and my head exploded i literally listened to them all day pretty much every day the entire time i was there and then rewatched the movie and these two things clicked together and i instantly became instantly queen became my favorite band of all time and this up until for some of you who watched our How to Train Your Dragon fanboy, up until that movie became a thing, this was my number one. Now it's probably tied with How to Train Your Dragon. But it's an incredible film. Uh, it has all of the quintessential 80s things that are it's awesome. It's so 80s. It's, it's very, very 80s. There's crimped hair. There's 80s New York. Um, New York is so ugly. In this uh, yeah. <laughs> it's just terrible. It I mean, really I really captures... I mean, this was all a choice to film it this way, but... It's like this, any movie from the 70s or 80s that takes place in New York. It's like the ugliest place yeah, on earth. They make, <laughs> it, they make it very dumpy as a contrast to all these flashbacks in time that you get to see of these immortals living their lives. And I think that's really, quote unquote, what the prize and the quickening uh, ties into. It's it's They've lived so many centuries. Uh, Connor was, I think... Uh, he would by the time this movie came out, Connor McCloud was, or I should say, in the storyline, he was like 476 years old. Uh, Sean Connery's character, uh, Ramirez, was around for thousands of years. Um, you know, so it's this collected history and story that they carry uh, and their experiences that passes each time they fight, so that the final, the final person standing, you know, ends up with all of that experience, all of that connection, all of that. Yeah. So. Two things. <laughs> I remember, so the first time I saw this movie was back in 2001. I remember you actually lent me the VHS, which were aging ourselves. Yeah, a little terribly. bit. <laughs> I remember watching that on my own and be like, okay, that's fine. This is a fine movie. And then later when we started dating a while later, we were trying to figure out, oh, what's our song, our couple song? And oh. you suggested a song called Who, Who Wants, Wants to Live, Live Forever? Forever, which makes it sound like dating me. Drive someone to suicide. <laughs> no. So I'm like, no, no, it's it's a fine song. So we ended up on settling on um, uh, on uh, from the Buffy musical "I'm Under Your Spell." Ended mm -hmm. up dancing to that at our wedding alongside mm -hmm. another amazing song. I think we talked about this before. Yeah, so. I I picked. Oh, it was "A Thousand Years" by Christina Perry. Which when I picked it, I didn't know that was the Twilight thing. I had no <laughs> idea. I only figured it out a month before. I was like, oh crap! No, I I can't not use it because it's twilight but also it's super embarrassing so whatever we did it and it's fine um so so for my take on yeah. the movie i was going to say uh from a filmmaker's perspective i like this movie i give it a solid b there's some things there's things i really like i don't mean to trash on it there's sure. a lot that i really enjoyed i really enjoyed the performances i like the basic story i feel like structurally 
there, there's just so much that could have been explored. I feel like Sean Connery's character is thrown in just for the sake of having Sean Connery oh, on yeah. set. What I did read in the IMDb trivia, they only had Sean Connery for a week. Yep. And so they had to do a lot with a little time. His, his character just is not fully realized. Sure. And because he, but he's really good in his part. I really enjoy his performance. He, he's obviously, the, I think he's the best actor in the movie. I think the other, Christopher Lambert, and I think it's Roxanne Hart. And is he was the, also very fond of telling the cast and crew, like when they were when they were doing something wrong. He was notorious for like walking up to the crew and being like, "He is well." He hated inefficiency, so like anything he spotted, I, I think yeah. if John Connor told me to do something, I would, I would drop and <laughs> do it. I, he, you know, when James Bond orders you around, you you do what he says. For real. I also read that him and Christopher Lambert got along so well during the shoot that that's why he was in like the sequel which was apparently really stupid and I it shouldn't was, yeah. I shouldn't watch it but I I do like their chemistry it just his every time I watch the movie like I I feel kind of like I'm missing out something with mm-hmm. that character and it, and it probably was because they only had him for a week mm-hmm. and they they did the best that they could but so his his characters feel shoehorned in there and and again, you you told me so much backstory about these characters and their mythos. And I think it's really interesting, but I think you know so much about this because you kind of researched and deep-dived it. Oh, sure. And I don't think, like me, a casual viewer, really picked up on all of that. I think there's so yeah, much. you have to be and, a super fan, certainly. And I, I don't think the movie delivers that. I think at the, at the best of it, it's a really nice, you know, sci-fi, action, adventure, crime romance it, it blends a lot of genres it doesn't go as deep into their mythos as like star wars right. or lord of the rings or any of these other fantasies do so i would have liked to see more so that's just my little critique yeah. of the movie but, but again it's, it's very good i enjoyed it it's, it's worth a watch and yeah. it's on amazon prime so and I would you say, can watch it for free if you have that i would say the the things that don't get fleshed out that are a little bit mysterious and make it for many people a one-watch film um, are, are actually the things that kind of make it great. I, I know that sounds that sounds weird, but when they do deep dive the mythos in all of these subsequent films, they spend so much time trying to retcon the mystery of the first movie that the movies themselves suffered, in my opinion. Right. So yeah, I, I think you know for a lot of folks that were big fans, it was definitely like an '80s kid. Like you were you were a kid and you were like New York City lightning in the sky, katana swords and you get you know like that that was my experience with it. So I think my love for it is much is as much about the the zeitgeist of the time for me and and my my personal story is sort of connection oh, sure. with yeah. it. You know, like it reminds me of my dad. It reminds mm-hmm. me of that time when we would hang out in the summers. Um, so yeah, it, it's a it's definitely something that's uh, stuck with me. And you know, again, like. I actually deep dived the music a lot into it, and the reason I loved that song "Who Wants to Live Forever" so much is I found out uh, when I was younger and deep diving this stuff. Each band member of Queen had a favorite piece of this movie, so all these different songs on the track you hear are them going away and being like, "I loved this scene so much," and they were inspired to write music for it. So the the legend behind "Who Wants to Live Forever" is that Brian May was uh, the guitarist for Queen was so touched. Uh, by the, the by the scenes between Connor and his wife Heather, uh, that he wrote this story on the cab ride home from the studio. Like, that. Wow. <laughs> so it's it's just a very cool. Um, it's one of those things that got even cooler for me when I did sort of go crazy deep diving it. But then again, I kind of do that with everything. So <laughs> yeah, and to follow up on that, I did read that I think Queen was like originally contracted to write one song, right? And then when they were watching the the print, they like the movie so much that they decided to do the entire soundtrack. And this movie is that music. Like for me, and which I don't, yeah. Surpri- I mean, I understand when in Bohemian Rhapsody, they, they skipped over this album, right? Did they even mention this in that movie? No. Well, I've only so, seen that. I've only seen that movie once, I've but, I, but I don't remember them too. even talking about. They, uh, I think they played. Um, so a lot of this music that this never, it did have an eventual soundtrack, but a lot of the music that you see in Highlander uh, is actually placed within the Queen uh, 
magic album where mm. it, it's a kind of magic. Um, so I think in that movie you did, I think you hear some of those songs, um, namely it's a kind of magic, I think. But no, that they skipped over. Uh, so a lot of the Magic album, even though it's one of my favorites, did not make a lot of the Queen's best hits uh, breakouts that you see. Okay, great. Any final thoughts or? Yeah, um, you know, I would just say like for a for a film class study on on like the '80s and New York and taking a lot of different sci-fi fantasy. Uh, sword play genres and throwing them all into a big pie um you know if you like that that kind of thing even though it's an older film uh you know i think that's why its legacy has lasted so long so enjoy great all right and that is our episode if you've enjoyed this podcast you can follow us and download this episode and all of our previous ep episodes on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and wherever else you may get your podcasts. If you've enjoyed listening to this, please consider rating and reviewing us on yes, Apple please. Podcasts. Yes, a five-star review will really help with our visibility on that platform. If you would like to email us, you can reach us at spiritsandchatpodcast at gmail.com, or you can find us on Facebook and on Twitter at spiritsandchat. And please stay safe, stay healthy, stay healthy, social distance, wash your hands, and we will be back next week. Until then.